John chapter 12, uh, we're continuing this study on conversations with Jesus. And uh, we started last week, and uh, I want to ask you to consider with me uh, this idea that in this conversation in 12, there is, in my judgment, as I'm looking through this and working through it, what I'm calling an adjustment to reality. An adjustment to reality. What the real issues are here and what Jesus shows as he talks to his disciples, as he relates and interacts with a group of Greeks uh, that show up. So we're going to be again uh, in John chapter 12, beginning at verse 23 here in just a minute. But let me, let me tell you a story about this matter about reality. Uh, I, I heard this little story about a little boy in East Texas. Now, it wasn't me and it wasn't Doug, I, I don't think. That uh, This little boy got a brand new bat uh, from his dad. And uh, he was about nine years old, and, you know, playing baseball was a big deal to him. So he goes in the backyard like kids would do, and he gets the baseball, and he throws it up in the air, and as he does it, he kind of cocks that bat back, and he says these words, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he swings and misses. (laughs) So he goes over and picks the ball up again, and, and, and picks it up and throws it up in the air, and with a little more determination, he cocks the bat and gets it ready and swings through saying, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he misses. Another strike. So he knows he's got three strikes in baseball, so he picks the ball up again and throws it up in the air. And he, with all the grit and determination that he can, he swings the bat and says, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he missed it. And he just stands there in his yard. You know, what? what's happened is reality has kind of sunk in. He just kind of stands there in the yard. And then in a moment of incredible clarity with reality, he shouts out, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. (laughs) Now, now whether you call that reality or not, (laughs) here's here's a young boy that is having to deal with some reality, isn't he? And, and having to make some adjustments in his own mind, and we find that in our lives. I think, again, I, I said to someone just the other day, if you've ever read the Bible, especially the Gospels of Jesus, if you've ever read those, and those haven't jerked you up short and made you ask yourself about reality, you're not reading. You're just not reading. This guy is not that easy to understand at each point. And so we find that it's an adjustment at times for us to come to reality to, to, to really face it. We, we, we like to, uh, if you will, avoid it in every case that we can. When Jesus here in John chapter 12 again is trying to bring some reality and some adjustment, after the Greeks have said, sir, we would see Jesus, and Jesus says in John 12, 23, and Jesus answered and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, I want you to look down here again in verse 27. I'm going to connect a couple things and come back in the middle. And Jesus, still speaking, says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. Now what I want you to note is in verse 23, the word, the hour, and in verse 27, this hour. The same phrase here of hour. The hour has come. And what I want to look at here for a moment, as you may uh, take a look here on this first point here, is adjusting to reality, is adjusting to a God-timed life. Adjusting to a God-timed life. Now, you know, this uh, matter about time, the hour, um, you may or, it, it, it's just a, an interesting uh, facet of the Gospel of John 
that this term hour that Jesus uses occurs over 22 times in the Gospel of John. My hour, the hour. Remember what he said to his mother in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana when she said, hey, they've run out of wine. And Jesus said, what is that to me, woman? I would like to have been there at that time again. You know, I remember saying that to my mom one time. Woman? And uh, I I didn't see my mom for about two months after that. And then my eyes started slowly opening. He said to her, he said, my hour's not here. My hour's not. In other words, you know, Jesus shows this kind of God-timed awareness. His mother asked him to do something. And he says, it's not my time. And we know he eventually did. The point here seems to be that in, in the Gospel of John and in Jesus' life, there's a sense of timing. There's a sense of I do what I do, not just on some clock, not just on some pressurized situation, but I operate in my life, if you will, based on what God has for me to do. I want to unpack that a little bit. Uh, The tense here when Jesus said the hour has come uh, is in Greek, it's what we call the perfect tense, and it means this, the hour now is here and it continues. In other words, there's some kind of, if you will, crossing over not just in chronology, but something's happening here that's going to continue. Jesus' hour has come. And so he says, the hour has come for the Son to be glorified. It denotes a a life given, if you will, to God's timing. Now I know that sounds all general, and I'm going to try to get more specific, but I would like to ask you to consider that one of the things that we wrestle with uh, in a a lot of ways... um, is the issue of time. Who is it that has control of our lives? Who is it that has control over us? How is it that we seem to go through life without enough? You know, I I did some research on this, and uh, it's interesting that in 1890, in 1890, when a couple of y'all were born then, and, uh, (laughs) sorry, that's cheap, I know. Uh, 1890, the average, meaning, you know, they took the high and the low, the average work week was 60 hours. The average work week. In 1950, the, uh, uh, the average work week had come down to 40 hours. In the 50s, I remember reading about a Senate hearing that they were wondering how Americans would fill their time with other activities because of the, they're seeing the ramping up of technology in the 50s that they believe that the average person would probably work around 27 to 30 hours a week. How's that going? <laughs> th- th- think of that. Think of that idea. I mean, I was thinking, we got computers and iPads and smarter phones than we are and microwaves and all kinds of access to information. And it seems to me that I'm working more now than I ever did. You know, when I go to get my tires balanced and rotated, I'm sitting there with my iPad, answering emails, working. This matter of a God-timed life, to me, is a serious matter. It is, in fact, the investment of our life is how our time either gets taken away from us or we take some charge of it by living in a greater, if you will, uh, awareness. In, in looking at that, Jesus said, my hour, it's come, and something's happening here now. Maybe you thought like I do. I, Dave Facken, good friend of mine, I know Dave for a long time. David and I are afflicted with this idea that every time we hear something, it reminds us of a rock and roll song. You probably know. 
as I was walking through the park one day, street one day, a man came up to me and asked me what time that was on my watch. Oh, yeah. And I said, come on, help me now. Does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody care? Stop it. <laughs> hey, last week we had a git. By the way, it's the uh, East Texas. We had a guitar and a cello playing a song. You know that that song. Just does anybody know what time it is? Does anybody even care? If so, I can't imagine why about time we've all got time enough to what? Cry. Oh, no, no. How did we ever listen to that song? (laughs) Time. Time. Jesus will not respond to pressure. He won't. Jesus responds to priorities. Now, if you're like me, at this point, I've come to the point in my life, I'm serious now, I'd rather give you my money than my time. It, it, it seems like that's the one commodity, well, obviously the one com- I mean, you can make some more money, you can't get more time. And as I'm looking at my life and I'm thinking about it, you know, sometimes we have to step back and, and ask ourselves, am I living a life like Jesus that's kind of God? T-? Now, I'm not saying you have to be a preacher, go on the mission field, or everything's spiritual. We've got jobs, we've got Families, we got yards to mow. Becky has a picture of me, if any of you are interested. I just finished my fifth mowing job. Just so you know. Just so you know. So you know. Stop it. No patronizing. No. We, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be theoretical or I'm not trying to be pie in the sky kind of stuff. I'm talking about life that Jesus lived. Not simply was he doing something spiritual. Sometimes they were fishing. Sometimes they were hanging around just talking. But he lived with this internal clock. This internal mechanism that said, I don't respond to pressure. I respond to pressure. It's not my hour. Jesus did not have any more time in a day than you and I did. Not, Not a bit. He had 24 hours. And we'll one day get to John 17, I promise. <laughs> Jesus makes this incredible statement. He said, the hour has come, Father. Now glorify yourself. We're going to see the connection. He said, I have completed the work that you gave me to do. He hadn't been to the cross yet. But he had a sense of, I'm, I'm doing what you have for me to do, God. I'm, I'm living in that kind of timing. I find that very difficult. I find here Jesus saying, my hour. So often we find, our, we find ourselves at the mercy of someone else's schedule. And sometimes that's the boss and we have to say yes and we have to do that. But there are other times that we have time that somehow has gotten captured by something else or, or invaded by things that when we look back and we say, well, how did I end up doing that? I read a little book uh, years ago. Maybe, maybe you have read it. I, I recommend it. It's called The Tyranny of the Urgent by Charles Hummel. It's like 25 pages but it is one of the most powerful books you'll ever read. It's called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And Hummel's premise is this, that the thing that's so difficult in life is that the urgent things are rarely important. And the important things are rarely urgent. Well, I mean, think of it this way. Man, we've got to mow the yard. It's going to rain tomorrow. 
You know, well, we've just got to go get this done at the house because there's a sale at Lowe's. I mean, I understand all that. And you're looking at your kids and you're thinking, I've only got four more years with this kid till they graduate. You know what? That's not urgent, is it? It doesn't scream for your attention. It doesn't yell for that. It's, it's important. It isn't urgent. Our problem is we respond to the urgency of life instead of the important thing. And I'm going to just say that the important thing, I think, is that I'm living with a consciousness, an awareness that I'm living on God's timetable. What's important to Him? I get with some guys and some of them in this room and, and we hang out every once in a while. And I sent a text the other night and I said, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm, I'm not that important to be that busy. But these guys I love and want to sp- share my life with and, and go, and yet, you know what we got to do? We got to stop. We got to put the brakes on and say, okay, here's a date. When are we meeting? When are we getting together? You know what? If you don't do that, it won't happen. If, if you know people you love and you care about and you know they're getting older and, and you're not going to you know, uh, see them as much as you could before, you know, if you don't just stop and say, you know what, I'm going to quit responding to pressure and I'm going to start responding to priorities, God-timed living. Call that person. Go see them. Maybe there's a ministry that you've thought about and they've been going on for years and you just thought, you know what, I've just kind of waited and monkeyed around and, and, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get involved. A God-timed life. The problem is... The important things are not urgent. And the urgent things are rarely, not always, but rarely important. Time with your kids. A neighbor that's sick in your neighborhood. A person that's lonely in your neighborhood. A person that you know at work that that needs an encouraging word and might respond to the gift of friendship. Or people that you know that you could write a note to or letter. So here's what if. (laughs) Thank you, Bill. (laughs) I don't think I put this on you because I was running late uh, today getting this all done. But let me ask you to consider on a God-timed life how you might do this. What if, I'm going to give you three words. You can write them here. Review. Review. John Wesley had the practice that every Sunday night he reviewed his week. And then he made steps to say how he would adjust and change the coming week. Right? Here we are. Here we're at the end of the week. We're going to look at our life. We're going to review. I just want to review and your schedule with your loved ones and make some actual adjustments to what is really important to you. Review. You say that friendship's important. Then do something about that. You say that that action in your neighborhood or that thing, do something about it. I, I, you know, I have a lot of scheduling things and have a lot of, lot of things that I do. And, and I, I said to Alan uh, one day in church here, and I said, you know, we need to have lunch together someday. He says, now. And I went, up. Uh, uh. It just kind of said, you know. And I thought, yeah, yeah, now, now. That's what's important. Now, now. So review your life, review your week, and ask yourself, does my schedule look like what I say is important to me, people, my family, my friends, my God, everything. I remember some years ago, Marty's dad, who just recently died, Dave uh, had a consultant uh, follow him around. 
Now think about this. He paid this guy money to follow him. And every 15 minutes, this guy uh, journaled what Dave was doing. At the end of three or four days, this guy said, Dave, here's all the time that you have that you're not using productively. Dave said it just frightened him to death. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to get you on some treadmill of squeeze everything out of every moment. I took a nap yesterday, you know, while Becky was working in the yard. And <clears throat> but I did mow. I did mow. I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about some frenetic, frantic way of living. I, you know, watch basketball games. And I told Becky the other day, we're now in the doldrums. You know, the only things on, on t- sports now is bowling. That's, you know, when you've had it. And I sat there and watched it one day. Like an idiot. Like... <laughs> Becky said, what are you doing? I'm watching bowling. I'm not talking about frenetic life or, or feeling pressure all the time to be productive. But asking yourself, what's important to me? What was important to Jesus was that He was on His Father's timetable. So second thing, not only review, number two, make. Make. Make a schedule where you make some appointments for spiritual growth. Make some appointments. I read a quote years ago that says like this, Oscar Thompson said, nothing becomes dynamic until it gets specific. Nothing becomes dynamic until it gets specific. Is spending time reading His Word or praying or singing songs to God or hearing music? Is that important to you? Schedule it. When are you going to do it? That isn't going to happen by itself. I've discovered that if I don't take control of my time, somebody else will. Schedule it. You know, when, when, and, and I, you know, I say to my students all the time, I'm not saying do this in the morning. or You know, I'm not trying to give you some legalism. I'm simply saying, is it morning? Is it afternoon? Is it lunch? I discovered some time ago, and I've got to schedule it more predictably. So, for some reason, and, I, and I'm not sure why, maybe, maybe I'm just finally growing up. Uh, I need music. My, my soul is, is, is somehow fed with, with, with music. Now, some of it's Jimi Hendrix, but you know, <laughs> most of it's not, but some of it is. <laughs> I have to sketch, and I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not trying to make you frenetic, but if you know that about yourself, if you know that helps you, I think it's silly to not schedule it. Don't just wait for it to happen, plan it to happen. You know, one of the things that I had to do uh, in my life, it is just, I'm a morning person. I wake up like this. I know that is a frightening thought. I do. I wake up like this. My students at 8 o'clock in the morning, oh my God, what happened to him? (laughs) At 8 o'clock, I say, I'm like this all the time. If you want to, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon now. But I remember, I thought, if I'm going to have any time with God on any regular basis, I got to do it in the morning. I'm not saying you have to. You know, the afternoon, night, before you go to bed, in the middle of the day, just hopping on one leg. I don't care. God doesn't either. But I can remember having to say to people a couple of times, and I took this because Jonathan Edwards said this, and if Jonathan Edwards, a great American theologian, can say it, I can say, hey, you know what? It's time for all good people to leave this house and go to bed. Good night. 
I have, and I said this, I have an appointment in the morning. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm glad you came here, but it's time for you to go. <laughs> right? I have not, have not had to do that with anybody in this room. Yet. <laughs> but I scheduled it. A God-timed life. Number three. Loosen. Loosen. I know this is going to sound contradictory to what I just said, so just work with it. It's dialectical. Okay. That's always my fallback. Loosen your grip on your schedule. And be willing to join God in what He's doing. You may not have Him on your schedule. You know, I have on my schedule, I need to do this, and I need to write this article and do this and do that. And I've got it all figured out what my day needs to look like. I find that often that God has something else to do. He's saying, hey, look here, look over here. Look over here, Cliff. See this? See this over here? This is, this is what, I'm, it's what I want you to be involved in right now. Loosen. On the one hand, you know, start scheduling. On the other one, loosen your grip on your schedule. I live by mine. I, my life is run by my phone. I, I thought I lost it one time and I was going to send an email. If I'm going to see you in the next nine years, please call me. Because I don't know. So I, it's, I, I mean, I'm scheduled up. I'm, what I'm having to do is, is, is loosen. You know what I find is that one of the things about a God-timed life is that when God brings people into your life, when you are present, why don't you go ahead and be there? Think about it. Why don't you just, when you're present, go ahead and be there? Instead of thinking about everything else you've got to do and looking over people's shoulders and thinking, when is this going to be over? Why don't you just, when you're there, be present? Now, I'm, now I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm, I'm telling you, this is me, okay? Loosen your grip. Kind of walk through life with an awareness that God's got a clock. And he does know what time it is. And he does care. And that as you go through your day, I mean, we've got to go to work. I'm not, again, this is difficult. The reason we do it is so difficult. I'm not trying to make some new legalism or some new rigidity, nor am I trying to say just, you know, stay in the hammock in the backyard and take it easy. Loosen your grip. Here's what Jesus did, and here's kind of the statement I want to leave with you. We're going on. A life lived by purpose. Instead of a life lived simply by pressure. Simply by pressure. A life lived by purpose instead of lived by pressure. You know, I, I'm getting older now, and uh, I find that sometimes the pressure I'm living under is that I feel like I've only got so many more years and so much more time. And sometimes that puts pressure on me. And I'm having to say to God, God, you know my days and you know my way. And I want to be able to have some sense of awareness that I'm not just responding to the pressures. I mean, I'm thinking about retirement money. I'm thinking that I don't have, you know, re, you know, retirement money. I'm thinking about when I'm going to pay the house off. I'm thinking about, you know, uh, how many more years of health do I have to work? That's pressure. We all feel that. I, I get that. But, but this sort of idea of, of a God time. Life. Jesus said, the hours come and now you glorify the Son. So I want to go to this next one. 
So you got something to do this week. We're going to move on past this. But what if you talked around your tables as to how you could live a God-timed life? What thi- one thing we have discussed, or something we haven't. I'm not, you know, I, I don't believe I'm the only teacher. I hope the Holy Spirit's here today and He's teaching. He may be saying something to you I'm not even saying, which is great. You go with Him and forget me. But it might be one thing for you to discuss of something you could do this week that would bring you closer to a God-timed life. What, what one thing could you do this week? Would it be review? Would it be schedule? Would it be loosen? Or is it something else? I mean, you know, again, maybe the Holy Spirit's talking to you in some other ways and saying, hey, here's what I'd like for you to think about doing. But again, as Bill said, the whole point here, I'm not interested in just talking about this stuff. I want to know how I can live it in my daily life to be the kind of person that can be like Jesus to say, hey, I'm operating on, on principle or purpose and not just pressure. I, just, I don't want to live like that. I, I want when this thing is run out that I could say I lived my life with purpose and intention. And, you know, I've told you that my goal in life, I'm not kidding you now. I, you know, we've never had kids. Be- God did not want Becky to ever raise two of them. And uh, <clears throat> she's had plenty of time raising me. But I've, I, one of the purposes I've lived by and I'm trusting is that when I die, which I hope is a way off for a while, is that there are 10 men at my funeral who don't look at their watch because we've invested ourselves in each other, because we've been friended one another, we've lived life together. What job or retirement home or golf course can put up with that? Ten men. I've got a few. I'm taking applications. <laughs> Some of you guys are in here. You know who you are. Purpose. Not pressure. Not pressure. Read that little book by Hummel. I'm telling you, it'll, it'll wear you out. Number two, <clears throat> adjusting to the real purpose of life. Now, I, I know, you know, we were... Uh, Eric uh, had been at camp a few weeks ago uh, out of town, and I told him, I said, Eric, we're still in chapter 12. <laughs> he said, oh, good, I didn't miss anything. <laughs> and then he hurt my feelings. <laughs> like, we didn't do anything here of any good? Yeah. He was at military camp. I said, did y'all make any crafts at camp? So, that's just how goofy. I may not get very far today either, but I'm telling you, I... Was I was, I've been working through There's some huge ideas here that Jesus is trying to adjust us to. To the reality. And, and that's it. Is the real purpose. Look, in this matter of the hour, I told you there's a connection in 12 and in 27 that the hour has come and what happens is is to glorify God. He said, the hour has come for the Son of, God to be, a Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 28. Father, glorify your name. The hours come, glorify your name. Now, here, here's what I want to ask you. The real purpose of life. We talked about getting our time played. Now let's talk about the purpose. Uh, Kirby John Caldwell, who's a, a, a pastor in Houston, Texas, at the largest United Methodist Church in the country, uh, like 14,000, 15,000 people. He spoke at the Leadership Summit several years ago, and uh, Kirby John Caldwell, you got to be cool if you have a name like that, right? Kirby John or something like that. He, he made this statement. He said, there are two great moments in your life Only two. One is when you're born. 
that's a pretty important moment. <laughs> you know, I said I was born in Amarillo, Texas because my mother was there. And uh, you know, <laughs> I want to be close to her. It's an old joke from a friend of mine. The moment you were born and the second only great moment in your life is when you discover why you were born. Why was I born? I was born. Why? Why was I born? Why am I? Now, I know there are lots of answers to that. And, you know, for, for some of you and others, I mean, some of it is, uh, you know, to uh, love your family and, and you have children and all those kind of things. But Jesus reveals something here that I want to dig down on just a little bit for the last few minutes that we have when He says, glorify the Son. Glorify the Father. The, the, the Hebrew word and Greek word kavod, it, it really means this. It means weighty, weighty, substantive. It mean, it, some translations, oh, I call it fat. My dad just said, I'm just living in God's glory. <laughs> It means substantive, majestic. And it's a term, glory, of majesty and wonder and those kind of matters, of, of, of something that is, 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 is wonderful. Uh, buildings are sometimes called to have, have, have glory. Uh, you, you go back in American history when they built the old Chrysler building with all those things, those little doodads or whatever those things are like that. You know, they talked about the glory of that building. Over in Tulsa, you know, they talk about the Art Deco. And, and architects and others will talk about, you know, the glory of those buildings. The Bible also says that nations have glory. Hosea 9.11, it, it talks about the glory of a nation, its power, its prowess, its substantiveness. Uh, I showed you a picture some time ago that, that one of the phrases, as I recall, out of gladiator was the glory of Rome. The glory of Rome. Human beings are described as glories in Psalm chapter 8. It's, it's, to glorify is to make something or, or someone much. John Piper, I, I love what John Piper says, is to glorify God is to make much of Him. To make much of Him. Not of us, but of Him. Now notice this idea to, to glorify. I, I want to suggest that in this passage there's glory in, in some ways that we wouldn't think of. First of all, there's glory in terms of passion. You know, Jesus said, the hours come now is the Son of Man glorified. He's going to the cross. This idea of glory, of substantiveness, must mean in some sense that Jesus is glorified as His substantiveness in His love to die for the world. Now I told you last week, one of the reasons that the Jewish people missed the Messiah they believed glory was riding in on a big white horse and kicking the Romans out to the Mediterranean Sea. That was glory. That was going to be glorious. In this case, Jesus said the Son of Man is going to be glorified when He is hung on a cross. God must need us to adjust our understanding to the reality of what substantiveness really is. What is weightiness in life? Is it getting your way, being powerful, having a country, ruling a company, having lots of people you rule over? Or is it to be able to show love? This is crazy stuff. The Son of God, 
or Son of Man is going to be glorified? Are you out of your mind? He's going to be crucified. Listen, when they drag him down that street, the Via Del Rosa, after they've beaten him and he looks worse than anything. That's glory. I want you to, later, I'll read this to you because uh, uh, I knew I was going to read it. Isaiah 53. This idea of God's glory seen in the passion of Jesus. This is so off the chart. This, this has to be so adjusted in reality. When Jesus says it, when I read it, it will take your breath away. If you're listening to it, if you're saying, the Son of Man is what? We know what's going to happen. When you read the Old Testament, listen to these words. This idea, how, how, how crazy this is. When glory is understood as love, sacrificial. Listen to what Isaiah says. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. Not a luxurious vine, not a wonderful vineyard. He grew up like a little root out of a parched ground. He had no stately form of majesty that we should look upon Him, nor His appearance that we would even be attracted to Him. Who's, it? Who's this talking about? The Messiah. What? This little root, not out of this vineyard, not out of this wonderful luxury, this little root out of a parched piece of ground, this, this one who we don't even want to look at. In fact, in Hebrew, or the idea here, you don't even want to, you just kind of, oh man. Whew. He doesn't look like Max Van Seidel in The Greatest Story Ever Told, who looks through you like, you know, your eyes are just like... <laughs> it says you would turn away from Him. You'd turn away from Him. Beaten. Broken, maligned, drugged down the street by a Roman guard. What do you do? You look away. You look at that. You, you know, I mean, we all rubberneck when we see a car crash. Because we don't usually see people laying out in the road. I have before. I've gone by a wreck and as soon as I just did that. I said, I, I can't, I don't want to see that. Jesus, you're going to be what? Glorified. How? Coming and kicking these guys out of town. Showing them who's boss. No. By dying on the cross. So we would not even look at Him. He was despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like no one from whom men, or, or, I'm sorry, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. And we refused to esteem Him. That's glory. Remember, God's adjusting our reality. God's adjusting our reality. Now listen, our world is so messed up and so broken. Did you see the glory in South Carolina the other day when people joined their hands in the deepest and sorrow of grief and said, we will not Hate, we will love. Hate will not win. Did you see any glory in that moment? I'm telling you, it took people's breath away from them. People stopped and said, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could act that way. I don't think I could respond in that kind of way. That's the Jesus kind of way that says we will not hate you. We will not despise you. We won't let hate take root in this city. We will love. Listen, that's glory, isn't it? That's not what we think. Get him. 
tear him apart from limb to limb. Why? Because we want to get our way. This is an adjustment. It's fascinating to me. I don't think I got this. Martin Luther King got it. You ought to read his book someday, Strength to Love. Martin Luther King got it. Strength to love. You know what's fascinating is Gandhi got it. Gandhi got it. Gandhi always commented that he was so attracted to Jesus. He had problems with Christians. <laughs> and we all said, Amen. <laughs> Gandhi got it. Martin Luther King got it. Think about this. Another verse. You go read this later in Deuteronomy 21. Jesus is going to the cross and He's saying, Now the Son of Man is glorified. If you go read Deuteronomy 21, this is again why the Jewish people rejected Him because it says this, Whoever hangs on a tree is cursed by God. That's what it says. Deuteronomy 20. You can go read. Listen. Whoever hangs upon a tree is cursed of God. Can't you imagine how these lovely, and I'm serious, can't you imagine how these lovely Jewish people missed this? Why? Their reality had to get adjusted. They thought glory meant power. Oh, it does. A friend of mine who preaches one time said, here's the problem with Jesus. When Jesus means power, He doesn't mean power. He means power. And I looked at him and said, what are you saying? See, Jesus takes some of these words that we know and completely turns them around. Despised. So when you see the glory of God, you see His Son stretched out on a tree for all the world to laugh and jeer. And yet, just like we saw in South Carolina, when we see it for what it is, it strikes at the heart. One other thing here. I think I've got this on the slide. We've got to hurry. You don't have anything to do. We're not going out to lunch. We don't take our dads to lunch. We just go home and have a bologna sandwich. And, you know. <laughs> glory in terms of present. Now, here's the other thing about glory. Now, you know, we're dealing with one verse. So, Glory, kavod, and this idea of glory is always associated in the Old Testament, and I believe Jesus is bringing the New Testament, with the presence of God. With, with the presence of God. Remember, whenever the tabernacle was built in Exodus 40, verse 34, it says, when God entered, the glory of the Lord entered that tabernacle. And it shined, called it Shekinah, or it shines. You can tell He's there. The glory of God is always associated in the Bible with His presence. That's why I took this picture. This is right by the western wall in Jerusalem. It says the divine presence never moves from the west. See, the glory of God is always present in a place. That's why whenever you go to Israel, here is the western wall. You see people streaming. That, that little sign is right here on the corner. But you'll, you see people streaming to this place. Because the glory of God is always understood as the presence of God. The presence of God. 
Think about that for a minute. The Son is glorified. The Father is glorified. How? I want to suggest to you. I just And this is crazy and, it, and it's hard to get. But the Son is glorified. The Son is glorified here. Meaning God is present. God is present. He's here. Again, how do, you, how, do you, how do you manage that? You think He's here in this guy who's strung out on a cross. He's here with this guy who's given His life. Yeah, the Son is being glorified because the Son is not only, if you will, uh, 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 the idea of God's love, but it's, it's God's presence. The great hymn we always sing at Christmas, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That in this person, in this moment, at this time, when he says the Son to be glorified, the Son is being glorified in that God is present. God's glory is always His presence. It's, it's the wonder of God that He would want to be present. That He desires to be present. So we adjust our understanding of the reality of God as God's actual real presence in the person of Jesus. God is showing us His glory, His presence. It's not only passion, but it's presence. Now I've got to end with something here, and it's on your outline, and you'll we'll come back next week. <laughs> when I hear this about glorify your Son both as passion and presence... It does remind me, and I just I want to give you a key here, what might help. If, if God's glory is His passion for us and His presence in us and with us, it seems to me that our lives would be lived to bring glory to God. His passion on us, His presence in us brings out our practice of glorifying Him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do. I want to ask you to consider something. Adjust your reality here. For most of my Christian life, I lived my life in some ways or another trying to avoid sinning. Just, you don't want to do that. You know, it's bad. Don't do it. All those kind of things. And I, I, at some point, by God's mercy, began to realize how powerless that is. What if this week, what if this week, you decided, I'm not going to ask the questions, is this sin or is it right or wrong? I'm going to live my life in this gear. Does it bring glory to God? If it doesn't bring glory to God, I'm not doing it. I'm not even going to worry right or wrong kind of stuff here. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to see how close to the edge I can get. I'm going to say, you know what? If this doesn't bring glory to God, I'm not messing with it. That'll solve the other question. Is it wrong? Is it sinful? It, it, it totally adjusts the way we approach life towards not now sin management. You know, I don't want to do the wrong thing to a life given to bring glory to God. That's how we're supposed to live. Not just not sinning, not just staying away from the bad stuff, but in giving our lives for His glory.
I promise you, it'll change the way you live. When you're spending your money, when you're spending your time, when you're with people, when you're saying, deciding whether to watch this show or not, or decide, you just say, well, now, you know, is this going to bring glory to God? You know, I, listen, I like to go to movies. If they may, I think God is glorified when people laugh their heads off. I think God is glorified when we experience the joy of living with family and friends. I think God is glorified when we eat Mexican food till we can't even move. <laughs> Hallelujah. And if you, if you can move, you haven't eaten enough yet. Right? God is glorified. God, God is glorified when we live as His created beings to bring glory and honor to His name. Not to be a bunch of old people that look like they lost their last friend, or as my dad used to say, look like they've been drinking sour pickle juice. Well, I'm just hanging on, brother. I want to say, let go. <laughs> What does that look like? Let me just suggest this. What does this look like? To believe that God's glory is His passion seen in Jesus for us who, even when it doesn't look like it's true. Do you think people could figure that out and say, hey, well, there's Jesus hanging on the cross. God really loves Him. Listen, the difficulty is for us to believe this when it looks like it isn't true. This is, again, why Israel missed Him. This is how they missed Him. You're going to have times, you already, I mean, you, um, listen, some of you have lived longer, more faithfully than I ever have for Jesus. You know. There are times you've got to believe God's passion, His glory for us when it doesn't look like it. Go read Isaiah 53 again. See how goofed up the people were because it didn't look like what they thought. Second, to act on the belief that God's glory is His presence with us. Act on it. Believe. Act on this. Act on the belief that God's glory is His presence with you. He is with you. You don't have to ask Him to be with you. He is with you. That is His glory, His presence. He's with us. And third, as I told you, to live my life to bring glory to God and not simply to try not to sin. What a terrible, miserable existence to just live my life on what I'm not doing. Cut yourself loose this week and say, I'm going to have as the central determining decision-making matter in my life, does this bring glory to God? You might have more fun than you know what to do with. You might actually enjoy following Jesus. You might find that there is life and life more abundantly. Quit asking, is it wrong? Or Just ask, can, can I just do this to bring glory to God? No matter what it is. Jesus adjusting your reality a little bit? We need it, don't we? We're just like the Jewish people. We get all these ideas in our head, and Jesus has to come along and knock them out of us. Like I'm saying, if you're not reading and getting the idea that this guy is a little tough to deal with, you're not reading. So this week, just this week, let's do this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know how much we need you. And you know how goofed up we can get and our reality becomes ours because we think we've created it. Help us in this coming week to live God-timed kind of life. We'll fail, we'll struggle, but help us to just keep that in front. And then we'll live a life of glory to bring glory and honor to you. Help us 
Give us strength that we fail neither God nor man. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. And we'll finish the rest of this next week.